Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Keita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Ms. Eva Villalba. Eva is the executive director of the Quebec Cancer Coalition and a value-based healthcare expert. She came to the cafe to discuss value-based healthcare and various levels of patient advocacy and involvement. Grab your warm drink and tune in for a great conversation. Hi, Ava. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so very much for coming. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? My name is Eva Valalba. I'm the executive director of the Quebec Cancer Coalition and a value-based healthcare expert. I've been working in patient advocacy specifically for people affected by cancer since about 2008. And I'm really passionate about healthcare transformation and how we can build more resilient healthcare systems. What got you interested in this domain? A lot of people expect a story of like personal experience with cancer in my family, but I really got into it accidentally and through a deep, compassionate empathy. I think cancer is so prevalent in our society, everyone's going to be affected by it at one moment or another. And of course I am now, but I wasn't when I initially got into it. What I initially saw was a lot of opportunity to make things better for people affected by cancer. When I started out in 2008, I was working in palliative home care. So people in end of life, mostly cancer patients and their families. And I saw that there was a lot of a lot to do in terms of quality of life, in terms of alleviating suffering, in terms of treating people like people and not like their disease. And I, what I really got passionate about, which is one of the reasons why now I'm very gung-ho about this whole patient advocacy opportunity, is the ability to use public policy for good and politics for good and not just for evil. So I often say that Politics is like the forests, you know, it's neither good nor bad. It's what you do with it. And I consider myself to be a Jedi of politics. And I like to use my powers of persuasion and influence and mobilizing stakeholders to actually get people excited about doing the right thing and the right thing for people affected by cancer, whether it's patients, survivors, caregivers, their family and society at large. So that's really what excites me is seeing that I could use these powers of persuasion because I have a bachelor's in psychology and I wanted to become a psychologist. That didn't turn out. So now I get to use this, this skill set really to influence politicians, decision makers. I work with clinicians and researchers, people responsible for health systems and patient partners themselves who are the most important stakeholders, as well as our members, which are cancer organizations, nonprofits in oncology. We have over 65 nonprofits in oncology in our coalition, and we work with them to really see how we can use public policy and improve the lives of people affected by cancer. Wonderful. I'm glad you found a way to repurpose your skills so that you can become a Jedi for all of us. Not everyone has that kind of patience and finesse to do what you do. Can you please tell us what is value-based healthcare? So in 2019, I got really interested in value-based healthcare, which was originally an idea put forward by Elizabeth Tysberg and Michael Porter. From They were both professors at Harvard, PhDs in their respective domain. Michael Porter is really well known for business strategy. And Elizabeth Tysberg has a PhD in systems engineering. And she had some lived experience with three children afflicted by congenital heart disease. 
And so she was really having trouble navigating this system. As a person with a certain level of privilege, she found it difficult. So she started putting herself in the place of others and saying, if I'm having trouble, how are other people navigating this? And why is it so complicated? Why does it have to be so inefficient? And she and Michael Porter wrote this book, Redefining Healthcare, Value-Based Competition Based on Results, which is the subline. And they really proposed this new approach to healthcare. And what it is, what if we evaluated decisions, healthcare decisions, based on value from the perspective of patients? Not value from the perspective of healthcare providers or for systems like public payers, private payers, not in terms of what's best for the pharma companies, but what if we created value at the level of patients? What does that mean? Very simply put, it means that our health systems, especially our public health systems, should be doing what? Are they supposed to just deliver healthcare services? Like the, the most healthcare, it doesn't matter. Like you need a knee replacement, we're going to give you a knee replacement. We're not going to check if it's the right knee. It might be the left knee that you need to get repaired, but we did a surgery, so that's fine. No. So let me step back. What is value-based healthcare? Value-based healthcare is value that is created by an improvement of health outcomes and health outcomes that are more just the binary having cancer, not having cancer. But how are you generally? Do you have good mental health? Do you have good sexual health? Are you in pain? Are you functional? Can you return to work? Can you go back to your normal activities? That is an improvement of health outcomes. And relative to what? Relative to costs, but over the whole trajectory of care. So what do we do now? We make decisions based on this treatment looks very expensive. This test looks very expensive. We'll try everything else that looks cheaper. And then maybe at the end, if you're still alive, we're going to give you the treatment that we should have given you in the first place. But we're going to give you one or two or three or four treatments first. And then if you're still alive at the end, we'll give you the right treatment. That's not value for the patient. So again, value for the patient is the very simple equation. Improvement of health outcomes from the perspective of patients. Outcomes that matter to patients. Relative to the cost, not at one point in time, but over the whole trajectory of care. So by that reasoning, if you actually do a test to identify a biomarker, a specific gene, for example, or a specific mutation that can allow you to have a targeted therapy that will be way more effective the first time around, that improves your outcomes and it costs less in the long run because you're not being rehospitalized, you're not dying, you're not having complications, you're not using other hospital resources. And so value for the patient means value for all of the stakeholders in the healthcare system. That is value-based healthcare. I like that definition. Thank you. It's pretty all-encompassing. Why do you think that this is the way to go? So I would say that value-based healthcare is not just the future. It's the next step in the evolution of healthcare transformation. Specifically, I think in Canada, we're really ready for it. They have been using this approach for over a decade in countries in Scandinavia. The Netherlands is very advanced. A couple of European countries are using it. Australia, even in Brazil. I think that in Canada, it's particularly timely. Why? Because we need to build more resilient healthcare systems. And in order to do that, we need to do a few things that are also necessary for value-based care. 
Number one, we need to start measuring and measuring things that matter to patients, like quality of life measures, like patient experience, like how much does it cost to do the right thing in the right place as well? Because people would rather be treated closer to their home than traveling three hours to get care. So how can we actually decentralize things and not have this hospital-centric approach? That's very value-based in its approach. Why is it important? Because in Quebec in particular, we have this healthcare reform. There's a health reform bill called Bill 15. It's very value-based as well. And that involves looking at the cost over the whole trajectory of care. It looks at measuring outcomes that matter to patients. It looks at measuring patient experience. And it looks at making decisions based on what's better for patients and other stakeholders. How can we use limited resources most optimally? We need to start measuring things, and we haven't done that before. So now we have these public dashboards, which are going to be very useful. We have a new health data bill that has now become law, which will also help. And so we really are pushing for, as patient advocates as well, for the data to follow the patient. And when the data follows the patient and patients own their own data, then you could really start making informed decisions based on your care. Then I can say, okay, doctor, you're offering me three options for treatment. How have other people like me responded? Not just did they survive, but what else? Did they have nausea? Did they have fatigue? Were they able to return to work? What were the long-term impacts on their quality of life? And those are questions that are important to patients and families, but that haven't historically been measured. And I think that's because now with COVID, we saw the importance of having real-time, up-to-date data, having real-world evidence for treatments and for different interventions. I think that's making us really crave this kind of more participative patient partnership approach to care. Patient par the par patient partnership goes beyond patient centricity. So our healthcare systems went for a from a medical paternalistic kind of model where you just listen to the doctor, they were God, and they had all the answers. You don't ask questions. Then we went to a patient-centered model. And in the patient-centered model, the doctors and healthcare professionals are thinking about the patient and considering what they think the patient would need, but you're still not including the patient. You're making decisions for them. In patient partnership, and, the, and what's called the, in the literature, the Montreal model of patient partnership, which was developed at the University of Montreal, but is now used internationally. And in that approach, the patient is a partner of their own care, but they're also an equal expert in the care team. And they need to be consulted and be able to make informed decisions. And why am I talking to that about that in relation to value-based healthcare? It's because we can only create value if we actually take the time to ask patients what's important for them, which was not what we're doing. We're assuming that it's a cookie cutter approach for everyone and it worked for them. So it's going to work for you without even asking. And you know how much it costs to ask? It costs nothing. There's no excuse. It's just a change in paradigm. It's a change in paradigm to actually care. And in this context where doctors and healthcare professionals are burning out, are having trouble, like, you know, staying at work and it's very difficult. We need to humanize healthcare. I'm involved with this organization, this movement called People Before Patients. They have a great website. You can check it out. And it's really all about humanizing healthcare. And I think that if doctors start asking these meaningful questions, 
Like, what are your goals? Besides having cancer, not having cancer, let me focus on that as a clinician with your care team and I'll involve you as much as possible. But if we can actually say, what else do you want? Do you want to be able to go back to running marathons? Do you want to be able to have children or have a healthy sex life with your partner or go and play with your grandchildren in the garden or whatever it is? We need to actually consider those goals of care as important because just surviving with poor quality of life is not enough. And that's not value. And that person will be rehospitalized or be a burden on the healthcare system and will suffer. I mean, that should be enough of a reason. So I think that there's really an opportunity with this paradigm shift that has happened because of COVID, with the realization that it's unsustainable, not just for cost reasons, but for human resource reasons, for reasons that are related to the aging population, for reasons of accessibility and health inequities. We really need to change how we approach healthcare decisions. And if we use creating value from the perspective of patients as our foundation, I do believe that it will be not just sustainable, but that we'll evolve to something that's more equitable, better for patients, we'll get people back to work, we'll be healthier for communities. And that's altogether win 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 for all stakeholders. I love that. That's very exciting. And I think it's crazy that. Patients aren't generally asked these questions to begin with, that getting people involved is somehow an innovation. Mind-blowing, right? Two follow-on questions from what you were talking about. One of the things you mentioned is having the data follow the patient. Does that mean, you know, regardless of which hospital or doctor I go to, they can pull up my file? Absolutely. I mean, did you know that when you go to your local pharmacist to get your prescription filled, they do not even have your diagnosis. Really? They have to play a game of charades with you to figure out. Sometimes there's a drug that you can be given, you know, for cancer or for arthritis, but it's the same drug and they have to ask you questions. The average person assumes that their data follows them where they go. But if you've ever tried to get your medical record from a hospital, it belongs to you, but it's really not that easy to get your hands on it. And then patients end up traveling with these ginormous binders of their own data and they have to remember and they have to get the medical literacy to even understand what's happening. That shouldn't be the case. Currently, there's data silos, not just between the hospital and the pharmacy and your primary care provider and never mind with the private clinics that you may consult, but even within a hospital, the departments don't necessarily share your own information. You could be admitted to emergency and your oncologist won't necessarily know, which is mind-boggling. That's ridiculous, yeah. However, the good news is that with the new law and across Canada, they are working on a pan-Canadian health data strategy. It's coming. Luckily, Quebec has actually been a bit more innovative. and We've actually ruled it into law in 2023. So in the next two years, we should see it operationalized. And that's going to have a lot of consequences, positive consequences, which means your data will be able to follow you across silos, across functional silos, across data silos, across the location. So what we really want to see is for all of my information as a patient, whether it be a blood test in a private clinic, in a public clinic, at the pharmacy, that whatever I want to share with my health provider, I can about my own information. 
and that at the level of the government, they have the data that they need to make better decisions. For example, last year, there was a very controversial thing that came out where there's a region of Western Quebec that has this foundry where we found that public health knew that there was four times more lung cancer and other diseases in that area because of the foundry. There are other areas like in Montreal East, near Quebec City, anywhere near an aluminum factory. There's a lot of places where we know that there are higher incidences of certain types of cancer. Why aren't we doing anything about it? You know, so like the question is not just collecting data in itself is not good enough. We need to have a plan to do something about that data. And so having more transparent data sharing, having these public dashboards actually puts the onus on the government, the burden of accountability to the public. And that's really what we're pushing for is we want to see clear, measurable steps towards reducing the incidence of and mortality of cancer and improving the quality of life. We can only do that by measuring and we can only do that by measuring all of the aspects of health. So what's happening currently is when you go to the hospital, all your different specialists, all your different healthcare professionals are seeing one piece of the elephant. Somebody's seeing the leg, somebody's seeing the trunk, somebody's seeing the tail, somebody's seeing the body. If you ask them what it is, they don't see the whole elephant. Somebody's going to say it's a rope. Somebody's going to say it's a wall. Somebody's going to say it's a tree. You need to see the whole elephant. That's value-based care is really seeing the whole in order to improve outcomes. And we need to do that by having all of the data shared by all of the healthcare professionals that are going to follow you. Otherwise, we could be like having avoidable errors and also suboptimal treatment. Even for patients, they don't even know what, how much of their data is out there, right? So some patients, and I want to I make sure to just preface that by saying, not everyone wants to be super hands-on on their own care. Some people do just want other people to take care of it, and that's absolutely okay. We should not force anyone to be more involved than they're ready to be. However, for those that do want to know and do want to be partners in their own care, we need to equip them with the right data to make informed decisions about their own health. And that's not necessarily what we're doing currently, but I think that's where we need to be going. And there are movements amongst patient advocacy groups and different organizations, public and private, that are really pushing in that direction. So I think we're really going to see a big shift in the next like two to three years towards more value-based care, more patient partnership, a better use of health data to make better healthcare decisions, and how to make our health systems more sustainable and delivering care closer to our communities as well. Wonderful. So it sounds like we're on our way, I think, to having a value-based system. What do you say? You know, recently I was presenting a poster at the UBC in Vancouver and everyone was very jealous about what we're doing in Quebec. So I do think that in Quebec, we are more advanced. We, it took us a while to get there. We're still doing a lot of things by paper, which is mind-boggling. However, we are leapfrogging and going a step over and now really accelerating our healthcare transformation towards value-based healthcare. And I think that it's being led by a lot of patient partners, a lot of patient advocacy groups, patient advocates like myself. And I think that the more we see that it's a win-win for all stakeholders, the easier it'll be for decision makers to take steps in this direction and do the right thing. What do you think are some of the remaining hurdles to getting there? 
So some of the remaining hurdles are the logistics of health data, which we have the capacity. We have all this AI specialty in Montreal and in Quebec. We can definitely accelerate this. The question is, are we really ready to change our cultures? It is a cultural shift, right? It is a shift towards measurement for continuous improvement instead of measurement for judging. And I think we're st- a lot of healthcare professionals, even the government, they're still worried about being overly transparent about their data because they're worried that they're going to be judged and that people will be continuously unhappy. But actually, measuring is the first step to improvement And it's a necessary step for continuous improvement. And I would say that the other thing that we're missing is really not just consulting patients afterwards, after the fact, once we've decided what the solution is, but actually co-creating with patients, with families, survivors, co-creating with the people that we're trying to help. Communities, underserved communities. We in Quebec don't talk enough about healthcare inequities because we don't admit that there's systemic racism, even though there is. And so we need to start actually addressing these issues by measuring, for example, like who's actually underserved and why is that? And then working with those communities to address those issues, not parachuting our own solutions without even talking to them and then wondering why it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you didn't actually talk to people and you're solving a problem that you've defined without talking to the people that might not see it the same way. Right. So I think that co-creation is something that is a must and that is starting, but we really need to keep pushing for that, for a a sincere co-creation and any healthcare solution design. That is not currently what we're doing. And that's at the Quebec Cancer Coalition. We have done a lot of patient experience mapping and talking to people with lived experience and Every single thing that we do, we do it not for patients, but with patients. And we're really trying to model what we want to see from the government. That's wonderful. One more question on value-based care before we shift the Quebec Healthcare Coalition. You mentioned something along the lines of, we'll give you these different treatments, and then if it doesn't work, we'll actually give you what we needed to give you in the first place. What is that about? Is that cost savings? Yes. So traditionally, governments, public payers have, and private payers like private insurance, have looked at how can we give you the minimum amount of choice for the cheapest cost? Putting their head in the sand like an ostrich about giving you that cheap treatment, crossing your fingers that it's going to work, is just going to make you be rehospitalized, maybe die maybe not, maybe have a poor quality of life. You're going to need a second line of treatment. You're going to need more healthcare resources. And then you're going to need another treatment that may or may not work. Let's see. Let's roll the dice. I mean, there is good evidence for it. I'm not saying it's pulled out of their hat. But we know now with the advent of precision medicine, we understand certain diseases for sure oncology, but even rare diseases, other diseases. But in oncology in particular, we're finally starting to understand where cancer comes from. What are the mechanisms of action? And most of them, some of them are due to viruses. For example, the HPV virus causes not only cervical cancer, but eight other types of cancer. 
genital cancers, but also head and neck cancers, which are on the rise. And it's totally preventable with vaccine. Let's get everyone vaccinated. There's not enough uptake on that. But there's also mutations and mutations could be either hereditary or they can be caused by viruses. They could be caused by pollution. They could be caused by lifestyle. And now that we understand what these mutations are and that we have drugs that target the mutation, not just the tumor. And traditionally, we would just target the tumor, try to cut it out in time and cross our fingers that it wouldn't come back. To make sure that it wouldn't come back, we would bombard you with like chemotherapy or radiotherapy. I'm really simplifying, okay? But that's basically how it was going on. Without really understanding, what do we do to make sure it doesn't come back? Let's just try to kill all your cells and hope that you don't die. Okay, so this very thin line between Lazarus and, okay, we'll bring you close to death and then we'll bring you back. I'm being facetious about it, but that's the reality. And it's not fun for patients or their families to see people going through that. So we finally have, and it, it's been a couple of years in the making. It's not the future. It's already here. We finally understand that some cancers, some people and some cancers have a specific set of very targetable mutations. So as soon as you have that mutation, you can get a drug that targets exactly that mutation. And that mutation is what's causing your cancer. Sometimes it's in an oral form, which is way better for patients. Sometimes it's not. But Right now, those treatments and those tests are more expensive than what we're currently using. So it's more expensive than surgery. It's more expensive than chemo and radiotherapy. And so we give people what is called the standard of care, what everybody gets when you have breast cancer, lung cancer, colorectal, et cetera. And then if you don't make it, if it comes back or, you know, it doesn't work after you might have lost all your hair and you have all these other side effects and brain fog and the sexual dysfunctions and all this stuff, then we might try something else. The next best thing, but it's still not the best, best thing. Now, we finally understand that if we want the best, best thing, you need to do a test. And now people are familiar with testing because we did testing during the pandemic. So it's a similar test. So we could do saliva, but we're not there yet. We could do liquid biopsies, which is basically a blood test that tells you if you have circulating tumor DNA. We're not quite there, but like in the next five years, we should be. But you can do a biopsy of your tumor and actually check for these mutations. It's called next generation sequencing or NGS. And they can check 350 biomarkers or little mutations in your tumor. And if they find one, two, three, four that are actually known to have drugs that compare to them, they can give you a drug that actually attacks the root cause of cancer. And that is revolutionary. But the reason that we haven't done that so far is because it costs too much. So what we're saying is, listen, that is really a very poor way to make decisions. OK, it's very short sighted. If you look at the value of giving the right person the right drug at the right time, it doesn't even have to be a drug. It could be a treatment. It could be an intervention. But giving the right person the right treatment at the right time is actually better for society. The person does better. You use less healthcare resources. They go back to their normal lives. In some cases, it's even curative. I mean, we're seeing some incredible gene therapy now, cellular and genetic therapy like CAR-Ts, which I won't go into, but for blood cancers or hematological cancers, people that would before be condemned to death are now surviving like five, 10 years, more longer than that. It's a really radical shift and it's all based on precision medicine. 
It's all based on actually understanding the mechanisms that drive cancer growth and proliferation. But it is, it's more expensive on the surface, but it's not more expensive when you actually consider all of the costs of not doing the right treatment. So three lines of treatment that don't work is not only terrible for the person and they will probably die, but it's also not cost efficient. But if we just put our blinders on and like accountants look at only one moment in time, then we're going to keep choosing things based on cost and not on value. And that's not very patient-centric at all. I mean, that's an accounting way to manage healthcare. And in a public healthcare system where we are the taxpayers and we are the ones that fund the system, we need to start investing more, not only in a value-based healthcare system, but in more in prevention, more in early detection, treating people early and finding their disease earlier and treating them properly with the right treatment at the right time is cheaper for us as a society. It is It creates value and it costs us less. Waiting until people have advanced stage cancers, for example, or other diseases, and then scrambling to help them at the last second and going through one, two, three, four lines of treatment that don't work, that's really poor use of our limited resources. And it's terrible for patients and for their communities. So there's really this need to evolve to another level. Now that our scientific understanding has evolved, our public policy has to be consequential and needs to also evolve. That's a really brilliant example. The mission of the Quebec Cancer Coalition is to be a leading advocate for people affected by cancer in order to improve the healthcare system in cancer. Now, you know that, but I'm thinking it for the benefit of our listeners. What are some of the common challenges facing cancer patients in Quebec? Currently, we've been talking a lot about precision oncology. And one of the common challenges is having access to diagnostic testing. So having access to these tests that actually tell you if you have any of these mutations, if there's any current therapies that are on the market or even in clinical trials. And so people aren't informed enough about what clinical trials exist. And sometimes people are afraid of clinical trials because they think they're going to be a guinea pig. But actually, in oncology, for example, and in other disease areas, if people engage in a clinical trial today, usually they're just going to be getting either what they would normally have gotten, like the standard of care, or this new novel therapy. So everyone needs to be properly informed. But in the cases of, for example, cancers with poor prognosis, cancers that have a very short life expectancy or that keep coming back regularly, that's where trying out these new therapies could be really interesting and important. And people aren't being actually informed of this enough. So I think the access to clinical trials, access to that biomarker testing is super important. I think another issue is we don't have enough support for survivorship. So I've worked a lot in palliative care. I think it's important to understand that palliative care is not just for when you're end of life, but actually it's really good to have some palliative care support as early as possible in your journey, because all that means is that they're going to take care of your symptoms. So they're not going to focus on curing you. There's other doctors for that. They're going to focus on making sure you're comfortable making sure you don't have any psychological or physical distress. 
So really managing your symptoms, which you would expect them to take care of anyways. Surgeons are just focused on let's get this tumor out. Let's get this tumor out. They're not so much focused on are you in pain? Can you walk? How's your sexual health? How's your mental health? So palliative care can actually help with that. So I think that's another thing that bears to be a little bit more reinforced, but also survivorship. So survivorship care in some jurisdictions, they have more support for survivors. I know you had Sophie Blondin on and they do excellent work at the MUHC. But what I'd like to see and what we really hear from patients and their families is that they need more psychosocial support. So we work a lot with the Canadian Association of Psychosocial Oncology, but it's still not super well known. And I think psychosocial support is important in any disease area, not just oncology. So I think support during treatments, but even maybe especially after treatments, because sometimes we're really patients tell us that they're really they feel well supported and there's a structure around their care while they're having treatments. And then after they're just in this wait and watch stage and it's really difficult for them to just deal with it alone. They can't necessarily talk to their families or friends about it because they don't get it. So, yes, support groups are important, but I think having doctors to follow them that actually understand what are the impacts of cancer, whatever disease they had on their lives, how can we manage and make sure that you have a good quality of life going forward. That's something that's lacking and that really should be reinforced in Quebec. And I think also we talked about that health data piece, just really empowering people to have more ownership of their own data and know what to do with it and to understand their options better. So I think that's, these are major shifts and places that could be that could continue to be improved. And what do you think is the best way for patients to make their voices heard? So that's a great question. I think the best way for patients to make their voices heard, it really depends on the individual, but there are great patient advocacy groups that are always looking for people with lived experience to actually co-create their solutions with and make sure that, you know, like us, that we're not just speaking on behalf of people, but with them. So patient advocacy groups, community groups, I think what's really interesting now in, in Quebec is there's actually partnership bureaus in all the cancer centers and in most hospitals. So patients can actually help at their local establishment level, where, whether it's a local clinic like a CLSC, whether it's at the hospitals, whether it's at the research center, they're always looking for patient partners. And I think that's a great way to take your own experience, your own lived experience, and use it to benefit others and use it to think at that ma more macro level. How can I influence the system? What would I have liked to, to see or hear or experience when I was going through it? And so for people that, that want to contribute at that higher level, there's these great opportunities with the partnership bureaus, uh, each hospital and health center. So in Quebec, that's a really interesting approach. And even in, in clinical trials, if people would like to get involved, a lot more researchers are now being open to this idea of collaborating with patient partners. And lastly, I think if people want to tell their story, there's great social media influencers now that are really using their story to inspire others and help others. I'm actually going to be part of a really great conference that's put on by Myeloma Canada which is Health E-Matters Conference, which is really cool. And they actually provide scholarships for patients to come and learn how to be better advocates for themselves on social media and tell their story. And so that's the Health E-Matters Conference. I can give you the link to that. But that's another really great way that patients can actually get more involved in their health and help other people. 
What advice do you give to patients on how to advocate for themselves? For patients that want to advocate for themselves, I would really tell them to be themselves, be sincere, try to see how you can make things better. You can totally point out what went wrong, but also think of what you would have liked. Be proactive in your solutions and your suggestions and recommendations because it's normal for people to be upset, angry, frustrated. Our system does that. It's like abnormally slow. There's blockages and there are actually good avenues. If really something terrible has happened, we have ombudsman. We have a complaint like procedure, which is legal and very well done. They have to respond to you. If something really bad happened, you can and should definitely complain not only to help yourself, but to help those after you. However, as a patient advocate, for someone with lived experience, the best thing you can do is take your story. If that's what calls you, if that's what really what you want and tell your story in such a way that it actually inspires others to do better and then surround yourself by other people who also want to do the same. And it's much more encouraging to be around other people that also want to move mountains and also want to transform healthcare. It's a lot more encouraging because otherwise it can get very lonely when we're just on our own. I encourage patient patient advocates to to really Look for others, look for other patient advocacy groups or tell their story within a larger audience and figure out also where they would like to make a difference. What's their priority? I've been very influenced by patient partners who have taken up specific challenges that affected them, but that they wanted to make sure didn't happen to other people, namely with rare diseases and rare conditions and rare cancers. We advocated a lot and we had some great inspirational patient partners, like one of my eventually very good friends, Sylvie Breton, who passed away recently, but she lived five years instead of three months. She was a fighter and she found out what she needed to do. She went to get her her biomarker sequenced. She got access to clinical trials because she didn't take no for an answer. And she advocated and she spoke to government that even though she passed away and we're all sad, what she really wanted to do was leave a mark. And she absolutely did. And I still work with people who have been around for a long time and they had their cancer a long time ago and they're still fighting. And it's very that's what we need, because at the end of the day, decision makers, it's easy for them to forget that there's a real face behind their decisions. And so. We need patient advocates to speak up. We need them to be in the media. We need them to come to meetings with us, with politicians. We need people to not forget that there's real humans affected by these decisions every day and that we need to make the right decisions that actually save lives and make people's lives better. And we need patient advocates for that because we can't just speak on their behalf. We don't want to either. And it's way more impactful when someone tells their own personal story in a genuine, authentic way. And that could actually move mountains. And so maybe my concluding advice on that is just really be yourself and trust that your experience is important and can make a really big difference for other people. That's great. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking we're talking patient advocates and we're talking patient partners. I wonder if it's useful to clarify for somebody might be thinking, oh, well, that I don't know if I'm ready to go big and share my story on a platform or advocate yeah. politician. Yeah. I'm wondering if it might be useful to clarify for people what, I guess, the step below that would be. And I think that's a patient partner, right? So sometimes people wonder, you know, what is 
am I really ready to be a, a patient partner or a patient admin? So I would say that the first level is you don't have to go big. You can just be a partner in your own care. Just be an actual part of the care team with your doctor and nurses and all of the other allied care professionals. That's one level. That's like, you know what, doctor, explain to me what you're talking to me about in a way that I can understand so that I can make decisions that are going to affect me and my family. That's level one. Level two is, okay, I went through something or I'm still going through something, but I really want to give back and I want to help people like me with my disease with my cancer or whatnot to go through their journey a little bit better because I experienced some things that I would rather have not experienced. It was a bit difficult for me. I had this chaos. Okay, let me work with my hospital with this patient partnership office, which it's called the Bureau de Partenariat or the Partnership Bureau at the hospitals or the CLSC. And then I can help them at that level. And then they'll be consulted on projects of like continuous improvement. Okay. So that's level two. Level three is, okay, now I want to be a patient advocate. I went through something and I've talked to other people that are going through stuff like me. I actually can share my experience with other people. I can share it in the public, I, whether it be in social media or there's a really great community of patient partners called La Communauté Experience. And they publish in English and in French. They have a great magazine. I'll, I'll send you the link. And it's all about people with lived experience sharing their stories. It's beautifully done. It's beautifully illustrated. Comes out like three, four times a year. And that's just about sharing your experience at that level with poems, with different writings. It's really with drawings. It's really beautiful. But also at the government level, you can also do it at the level of research. So they're looking for patient partners at the level of research centers. They're looking for patient partners teaching medical students how to be more human and how to care more about the patient experience. And then, of course, you can also get involved with your patient advocacy groups. So patient associations for whatever disease you have or a local community organization that's there for cancer patients, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, whatever disease you have experience with. And at that level, you're also a patient partner because you're using your personal experience to actually improve the lives of others. So it's more using your experience to build on it and to help others. And so I think that's the difference between the different levels. And you can be like just a partner in your own care. You can be a partner at the institutional level. You could be a partner at the big public policy level, or you can even just share your story publicly and be a patient advocate, lobbying and advocating for the things that are important to you and that, that are important to other people like you. And all of those different levels contribute to making our healthcare system better. So whatever level you're comfortable with is good. And if you're not ready, that's also okay. It's not necessarily for everyone. And we really need to normalize that. So it's okay if it's not for everyone, but for those that want to, they should be able to. And that's where patient advocacy groups like ours and others really are there to help people that might want to start in the patient advocacy world, but don't know where to start, don't know how to go about it. We're, we're absolutely there for that. I love that. Outlining those different scales and then reminding people, if you're not okay, if you're not ready, that's okay too. Is there anything in particular that you think us as patients really need to understand? Even for people 
who are in the healthcare system, it is surprisingly difficult to navigate. Just think about getting an appointment, how many hours you have to spend on the phone and people hang up on you. Sometimes there's no voicemail. It's frustrating, right? So what I want people to know is that you're right. It is annoying and frustrating. However, once you're in, you're in and you're well taken care of. And at the end of the day, there are organizations, if you're having trouble, one of our main preoccupations is access. How do you get in the door? How do you get access to that healthcare provider that you need? So we are working on different advocacy issues to make sure that people have more access to primary care, to specialists, et cetera. But in the meantime, what I would tell people is, you're right, it is frustrating. It's not just you. But also, there are resources there to help you. Yes, there's patient advocacy groups. There's phone lines from the government that will help you navigate. Now there's these new primary care clinics that are taking more people on. You might not get a doctor right away, but they're actually there to refer you to the appropriate healthcare professional because you might not need to pass through a doctor. Maybe you just want a physiotherapist, but then you have to pass through a doctor. So in these new clinics, they're actually pointing you in the right direction. And so what I would tell people is, you're right. It is frustrating. It is long. It's not the most efficient. They're working on it. But don't get frustrated. And there are resources that can help you to navigate that better. And that it's actually more reassuring to navigate it with other people that have gone through it or that have special access. We get a lot of calls from patients in oncology who have trouble accessing drugs that are available elsewhere, but not yet here, where there are special access pathways that we have that are not necessarily known to the public that doctors know they don't always talk about. So that's where patient advocacy groups can also help accessing. Like sometimes patients don't know what they don't know. So they don't know what questions to ask. So they don't ask any questions, but then they feel lost. And that's where I would really point them towards patient advocacy organizations that can actually help people and say, hey, did you think about asking these questions? Or some of them even have lists of questions that you can ask your doctor. So I think that that initial point of contact is confusing for people and normal. The second thing is there are resources that exist. You just might not know where to find them. And that's what patient advocacy groups are here for. I appreciate that reassurance. On the note of drugs, I recently saw you post on LinkedIn about cancer care and the approval of drugs. It was an opinion piece by Dr. Batiste. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that and how approval for cancer drugs can be fed up and what the holdup is? Ah, what the holdup is. The holdup is purely bureaucratic. It's not clinical. And the annoying part and I say annoying to be nice because I can use other words, is that some people are actually dying waiting for these drugs to be approved. And that is not okay with me. That is not okay with most of us patient advocates. The problem is that there's a lot of bureaucratic red tape and slowness. And what we saw during the pandemic is that when we want to go fast and give access, we are able to do so. So a lot of it is bureaucratic fat, bureaucratic nonsense that could be shortened. We really want the government to do better and accelerate access. Now that we're getting, we talked about precision medicine at the beginning. And now that we have things that are more and more precise for smaller and smaller populations, so they become rare conditions. They're not just rare diseases. They're not just rare cancers. They're like a rare mutation in an already rare disease, for example. It's like super rare. There's a super high end met need. These people have no other options. So they need options. 
the initial trials are very promising, but they're on a tiny number of people. And so the level of uncertainty is very high and the cost is very high. So the problem is that right now, HGAs, which are the public organizations that kind of evaluate drugs and decide if we're going to have them in Canada, in Quebec or not, they have been slow or sometimes in this case, they'll say, let's wait to get like 3000 people in a randomized control trial. But if it's a really rare disease, you're never going to have that many people. And these people are waiting for options and they're dying waiting for options. So what we saw is that we can actually accelerate the process. What they do in other places like the UK is they will give conditional approval. They will say, you know what? It looks like it works really well on these people, but it's a bit expensive and we're not sure. So they give access to people that consent, to people that say, you know, you can either die in three months or try this new drug. It's up to you. It's experimental, but, you know, that we're not 100% sure that it works. But with the other drug, you're going to die in three months. So why not try it? So you have these two options. If the patient chooses it, then they measure the outcomes. They see if it works or not. And if it works, then it gets reimbursed. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't get reimbursed. So that's much better than just saying, no soup for you. Nobody gets this drug. It's too uncertain. It's too expensive. That's what a current situation is. And that, as patient advocates, really bothers us because we know that there's people waiting for these amazing, incredible, promising new therapeutics. Sometimes, like I talked about at the beginning, they get them way too late in the process. And that's a problem. So what we would like to see is a more flexible kind of evaluation framework, a more flexible access for these people to get the right drugs at the right time. And if it seems expensive or there's uncertainty because it's a really small population, then they could be given conditional approval, conditional on the collection of real world evidence and conditional on like, if it works for people, you reimburse it. If it doesn't, you don't pay. It's a win-win for everyone. For the patients, they get access to drugs that they would never get and with really promising results. For the public payer, they actually get to not pay for when it doesn't work. So they get their money's worth. And for the manufacturer, they actually get access to the market that otherwise would just be a big zero. So it's a win-win for everyone. And ultimately, the healthcare professionals, what they want is for their patients to be better and to learn science and through medical innovation. So it's really a win-win for everyone, this approach. It's not necessarily for all drugs. It's really only for rare conditions. So I'm not saying that we should use it for diabetes, drugs, or other things. But I do think that if we are going to build more sustainable health systems, that's the way we need to go. Right. And as I'm listening to you, I'm seeing the example more clearly with the reference to the COVID vaccine, because that was an emergency and you had to speed it up. And here we have people who are dying from illnesses where there's a potential drug that can work, but we're not necessarily speeding it up. Exactly. And I think what we saw was what can happen when a society prioritizes a disease. We prioritized beating COVID-19 at all costs to the point where we even quarantined and we did all these draconian measures and we're not going to comment on that. But what we are going to comment on is, wow, look what we're capable of when we really want to. And now that we know that, for example, cancer is the number one killer in Canada, two in five Canadians will be affected in their lifetime and a quarter of those will die. Why aren't we prioritizing this? Why aren't we accelerating access to life-saving therapies? 
we can if we want to. And that's what we're trying to get the government to do is realize, let's mobilize. Let's get all of our resources aligned to prioritize the fight against cancer. In the U.S., Joe Biden announced his cancer moonshot, which was let's reduce, let's cut in half the mortality of cancer in the next 25 years. That's very ambitious. If you have that kind of goal, you can actually make different decisions. That's not what we're doing now. And that is what we want. That's what we want in Quebec. That's what we want in Canada. We want a concrete cancer plan. How are we going to reduce the incidence? How are we going to reduce the mortality and improve the quality of life? And let's have measurable objectives like reducing the rate of avoidable cancers by 30% in the next 10 years. That's what they have in France. Reducing or improving the cancers with poor prognosis, like pancreatic cancer does not have more than a 10-year survival after five years. That's insane. It hasn't moved in 50 years. For breast cancer, it's improved a lot, so much. For most cancers, it's improved. But for some cancers, it's actually getting worse. And melanoma, which is a skin cancer, is 90% avoidable. And it has been doubling in the past couple of years because people aren't aware that, yeah, you could get skin cancer if you're exposed to UV too much, especially when you're young. And so it's a really avoidable cancer, but we're not aware enough. We think that our Quebec sun or our Canadian sun is like not as strong as everywhere else, which is not true. But for all of these reasons, we need to have concrete measurable objectives and actually make different kinds of decisions. Decisions that ultimately reflect the society in which our healthcare system is meant to provide health, not just healthcare services. Healthcare services is not what we want. We do not want an all-you-can-eat buffet of healthcare services. I don't want an unnecessary surgery, do you? What we want is to be so healthy that we never need to go to the hospital. That is a good healthcare system. That is what we want. And that is a value-based healthcare system. A healthcare system in which we do so well in prevention and early detection that we barely need to use more advanced levels of the healthcare system. So in a sense, if we do so well on prevention, we don't even need to enter the system at all. So many people can avoid the system if we can just do really well on prevention and early detection. It is so much cheaper to treat a stage one or two cancer than a stage four cancer. Right. And it's way better for patients. They bounce back easily. Their families are better. They go back to work. Everybody's happy. If people could take one thing away from our conversation today, what do you think it should be? I would like people to remember that they have a lot more power than they think. When you're going through it, you feel very alone and you feel like it's only you. But there's a great power in sharing your story. I'm motivated and my energy comes from other people's stories, from wanting to do better for them. And so what I would say is, as people with lived experience, sharing your story actually makes a much bigger difference than you think. Hearing other people's stories also help you. And so I think that sense of community and that sense of sharing your story actually does make a huge difference. And we are really privileged to live in a real democracy where you can easily talk to your municipal, provincial, federal representative and tell them about your story. And they will actually care and they could eventually do something. And so I think if there's anything I want people to leave with, it's really you have a lot more power than you think. And your story is always important. I love that. This was great. Thank you so much, Eva, for coming to the Good Health Cafe. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's my pleasure, too. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Some key takeaways from Eva were 
She believes that value-based healthcare is not just a future, it's the next step in the evolution of healthcare transformation. Precision medicine is transforming the way we approach healthcare by targeting specific mutations. We can provide more effective and personalized treatments for patients. Patient partnership is key and there are various levels. Level one is being a partner in your own care. Level two is giving back to the community. And level three is becoming a patient advocate to impact public policy. And remember, if you don't want to be a patient partner advocate, that's okay too. And finally, there are patient advocacy groups and government phone lines available to help you find the right healthcare professional and resources that you need to make navigating the system less challenging. As usual, if you'd like to learn more about The Good Health Cafe, please check out our website, www.thegoodhealthcafe.com. And you can follow us on social media or sign up for our mailing list. And if you'd like information about the Quebec Cancer Care Coalition, the link is in the show notes. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.